Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 139, Sylvester II. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So I have to start this episode off with where Horace Mann starts his chapter on Sylvester II off because it's just so awesome. He writes, After having to deal so long rather with shadows of men than with living human beings, it is a great satisfaction in the midst of this dark and misty 10th century to encounter one who steps forth from its gloom a living, breathing man. Sylvester, Pope Sylvester, is that person. And we have met this real man before, almost 40 years ago, back in episode 133. We know a lot about his past, his personality, his life. Back then, he was a humble but learned monk, a young man named Gerbert of Aurelic. Gerbert was born in Aurelic, a small town in south-central France, somewhere around 945. He was known for his love of learning and reading, which began in the Benedictine monastery of St. Gerald in the town of Aurelac which was formed in part by the Cluniac reforms sweeping French Benedictine life at the time. Here he flourished, excelling in his studies, reading everything that was at hand, and gaining recognition as a brilliant young monk. In 967, a certain Catalonian count named Borel, the ruler of Barcelona, came to the monastery to make a retreat before taking the reins in Barcelona. The abbot, Gerbert's favorite teacher named Gerald, asked Borel what the academic life of Spain was like. Learning that there was this great culture of learning in Spain, he asked the Count to take Gerbert back with him and have him educated by the finest professors. In Spain, Gerbert excelled particularly in learning mathematics, which had been heavily influenced by the Arabic Umayyad culture of the Iberian Peninsula at the time. Catalonia was this meeting place between the Arabic West and the Christian East, and learning flourished there. And to get a sense of just how important the Arabic Spain was in terms of learning at the time, we can look at the great city of Cordoba, which Gerbert may have visited during his time studying. The library of Caliph al-Hakim II in Cordoba consisted of more than 400,000 books. At the time, that was orders of magnitude greater than any other collection in Europe, the biggest of which was only a couple thousand volumes. Gerbert almost certainly learned from Arabic sources, at least in translation, if not learning the original language, and he made use of Arabic numerals, the numbers we use today as opposed to Roman numerals in his mathematic work. And this is a big deal. Roman numerals were the, the history of mathematics, but they weren't that useful in calculation, whereas Arabic numerals were incredibly useful. Gerbert was exposed for several years to all the great works of the church. He read the classics of both pagan and Christian literature, including Cicero, Aristotle, Boethius, and Isidore of Seville, along with the latest studies of grammar, astronomy, and music. In 969, Count Borel decided to go to Rome. He wanted greater independence, both politically and ecclesiastically, for Catalonia, and so this was both a pilgrimage and an embassy. And he decided to take the young Gerbert with him. And that's how Gerbert first met Pope John XIII, as we heard way back in episode 133. He impressed the Pope with the extent of his learning, much of which had never been heard before in Italy. So if you remember, the Pope recommended him to another visiting noble at the time, the Holy Roman Emperor Otto I. Otto promptly hired Gerbert to serve as the teacher for his son, soon to be crowned Holy Roman Emperor Otto II, and this enabled Gerbert to serve in one of the most cosmopolitan courts at the time. 
Otto II's betrothed was a Byzantine princess, and East and West met here as well. After a couple years tutoring in the Ottonian court, Gerbert was introduced to the Archdeacon of Rems, a logician named Geranus. Gerbert asked the emperor for permission to go to Rems and study logic, and his request was granted, and so he got to go even deeper in his studies. In Rems, Gerbert served the archbishop as his resident scholar, and he pursued further studies in logic and rhetoric, while teaching at the same time in the cathedral school. His classroom was known for its depth and breadth of study, and his library grew substantially at this time. He sought out all the newest and best translations and editions of classical works, and he brought together at Rems an impressive collection. His learning was much broader and wide-ranging than any of the scholars at the time period, and he was truly one of the most learned men of his era, and his studying and teaching helped push forward the developing cathedral schools of Europe, which one day would give us the great universities of the high Middle Ages and the great scholastics like Bonaventure, Henry of Ghent, and Thomas Aquinas. One cool story was that while at Rems, Gerbert did some experiments with abacuses, you know, the ancient calculation device, which is those beads on various little rods. And he even made one so large that it covered the entire cathedral floor, and he could look at it from the balcony, shouting out to his pupils to move certain circles certain ways. And while it was impractical, he was able to do calculations with much larger numbers than a standard abacus. In 980 AD, we find Gerbert in Ravenna at the court of his former pupil, the Holy Roman Emperor Otto II. There he was challenged to a debate, one of the most famous academic exercises of the century, with another great scholar, Otric of Magdeburg. The subject of the debate was the role of scientific knowledge in philosophy, and Gerbert so defeated and trounced Otric that he retired afterwards and then he died in 981. This debate impressed Otto II greatly, and Otto appointed Gerbert soon afterwards to be the abbot of the most important abbey founded by St. Columbanus in Bobbio in northern Italy. But his time in Bobbio, however, did not go well. He appears to have been surrounded by people who wanted to take advantage of his youth and inexperience, and when he turned for help to his patron Otto II, Otto died. Likewise, Pope John XIV didn't seem to support him that much as either. So after a couple of years as abbot, he returned to Rems to continue teaching. And while in Rems, politically, things were changing in France. If you remember from previous episodes, the last French king who was of the Carolingian family, Louis the Do-Nothing, died and his succession was fiercely debated. The contenders were his uncle Charles, also a Carolingian, and Hugh Capet, one of the most powerful nobles in France. Gerbert supported Hugh in this endeavor, breaking with other clerics away from the Carolingian family, and Hugh was elected by the nobles' king. But again, if you remember from past episodes, Charles did not take this lying down. He invaded Rems and seems to have been led in the front gate by the archbishop, recently appointed by Hugh Arnulf. And it seems like for a brief moment, Gerbert sided with Charles, but soon convinced by some of his colleagues that he was really betraying his friends, Gerbert left the camp of Charles and returned to Hugh, where he served as the secretary to the king. Hugh, meanwhile, was furious, so he came to Rems himself, deposed Arnulf, and appointed in his stead Gerbert. Gerbert was consecrated Archbishop of Rems in the midst of this political and ecclesial firestorm in 991 AD. And we have a letter from Gerbert written upon his election to the See of Rems, which I want to read to you briefly. He wrote, If you ask me how this could have happened, I confess my ignorance. I do not know why a poor man in exile, someone who was not supported by his lineage or by his heritage, was preferred to rich men important to the nobility of their family. But you remember what happens next. Arnulf did not back down himself, protest to the Pope, and he suspended Gerbert from his see and reinstated Arnulf. 
There's a minor schism in Rems as both archbishops assert that they are the correct archbishop, and eventually at the Synod of Rems, Gerbert backs down. And while he still asserts his right, even going to Rome to plead his cause, he did, agreed to not celebrate Mass in Rems, a decision confirmed by the Pope. And he moved in 997 to the court of Otto III to serve as Otto's personal secretary and tutor. Gerbert's condemnation was seemingly confirmed by Pope Gregory V at the Synod of Pavia, as we heard last week, and he authorized provisionally for Arnulf to serve as the Archbishop of Rems pending a further investigation. So by 997, we see Gerbert in the court of Otto, serving as tutor, advisor, and secretary to the young emperor. He was apparently only 17 at the time. And here, Gerbert continued his scientific and literary work, studying mathematics, optics, and other things. But that life of science and study wouldn't last long. In 997, Otto III decided that if he was really going to be the Holy Roman Emperor, he should live in Rome. And especially since Gregory V had been forced to flee the city by Crescentius, he decided, now is the time for me to go to Italy. So taking with him Gerbert, Otto traveled south over the Alps, coming in 998 to Ravenna. Ravenna at the time had just lost its archbishop, and Otto used his influence to have Gerbert appointed Archbishop of Ravenna by the Pope. And once in Ravenna, Gerbert acted as a reformer, tag-teaming with a local saint, the abbot St. Romuald, who would eventually found the Calmadies Order. And the two of them worked hard in the city, calling a local synod to stamp out corruption, laxity, and to reform the education and holiness of the clergy. In Ravenna, Gerbert seems to have been a vigorous and dynamic reforming bishop. And though St. Romuald was eventually forced to leave his monastery by monks who thought he was too strict, the two reformers were really bright lights in a darker time for the church. But as we heard last week, Gerbert's time in Ravenna was short because in 999, Pope Gregory V died, and Otto III used his influence in Rome to get his advisor and tutor elected. And so on April 2nd, 999, Gerbert of Arillac was elected Pope, the first Frenchman to sit in the chair of Peter. A later Frankish writer wrote, Gerbert passed from R to R, then he became Pope in R from Rems to Ravenna to Rome. Gerbert took the name Sylvester II, purposely hearkening back to Pope Sylvester I, who was Pope during the reign of Constantine. Otto III was the new Constantine, the new Roman Emperor, and Gerbert was the new Pope Sylvester. Sylvester's time as Pope was brief, but a lot happened. In 996, just before Sylvester was elected Pope, St. Adelbert of Prague was martyred ministering to the Poles. His death and his work converting Boleslaw I led Poland requesting from the papacy not only an archbishop, which Sylvester granted, but also a kingdom. In 999, Sylvester canonized St. Adalbert, whom he had known personally, in a synod with Otto III present. Otto then went off to Poland on pilgrimage, and there he elevated Poland to a kingdom and helped set up the various dioceses of Kolobzerg, Krakow, and Warclaw. A similar exciting conversion happened in Hungary during the papacy of Sylvester. Stephen I, who was the leader of the Hungarians, was also a devout Christian, and it encouraged the spread of Christianity in his territory. He too wanted to be a king, and after asking permission from Otto III and Sylvester, was himself crowned king with a crown supposedly sent from Sylvester in either late 1000 or 1001. He then offered his kingdom of Hungary to the Blessed Virgin Mary and he later would become a saint, St. Stephen of Hungary. Now, not all was great for Sylvester and Otto during this time because the factions of Rome had united against Otto. If you remember, during the last century, there have been two major families in Rome, both descendants of a guy named Theophylact, the Count of Tusculum, the Tusculani, and the Crescenzi. 
led by Gregory, the current Count of Tusculum, the son of Albrecht II, who we know from way back, the Roman people revolted against Otto III and besieged him in his palace on the Palatine Hill. Otto staved off the first attack, but it was clear that there were more coming, and Otto and Sylvester fled Rome for Ravenna on February 16th, 1001. Otto was furious and began raising troops across northern Italy to retake Rome from Gregory, who had managed to expel not only Otto, but also the Crescenzi family, and had been declared the ruler of Rome. Otto, however, would not last long. As he left Ravenna to storm Rome, he promised St. Romuald that when he returned, he would enter his monastery. But St. Romuald replied that he would never again see Ravenna. The emperor died at a young age outside the city of Rome from a fever. His soldiers attempted to bring his body back to Germany, but they were harassed all along the way by the rebellious Roman forces until they finally managed to cross the Alps. With his great patron dead, Sylvester was left on his own. And to make matters worse, Gregory of Tusculum had been removed from power in Rome and had been replaced by another member of the hated Crescenzi family, John Crescentius, who declared himself Patricus of Rome and dictator in 1002. Sylvester returned to Rome, but his authority was severely limited by John Crescentius, who really was the power at the time. Pope Sylvester became deathly ill on May 3rd, 1003, while he was celebrating Mass at the Church of Santa Croce in Jerusalem. He was brought to the Lateran Palace, where he died nine days later, on May 12th, 1003. He was buried in the portico of the Lateran Basilica, where a long epitaph was composed for his grave by a later successor, Sergius IV. Now, the epitaph itself has an interesting legend associated with it, so I'll read it all. This place where the remains of Gerbert are buried will remain to the Lord when the sound of the trumpet will announce his coming. The virgin who favors the arts and Rome, guide of the world, had made him famous throughout the universe. Gerbert, a native of France, deserved first the Sea of Rems, metropolis of his homeland. He then deserved to govern the important and noble Church of Ravenna and became powerful. A year later, he obtained, changing his name, the Roman office and became pastor of the universe. Caesar Otto III, to whom he was always faithful and devoted, offered him this church. Both enlightened their time with the splendor of their wisdom. The century enjoyed it, the crime disappeared. He was like the guardian of the heavens, he who occupied his seat after changing places three times. He fulfilled for a decade the functions of Peter until death took him. The world remained frozen with terror. Peace disappeared. The triumphant church faltered, forgot the quiet. The pontiff Sergius, his successor, driven by a moved feeling of pity, has erected this tomb for his friend. Whoever you are, turn your gaze to this tomb. Say, Lord Almighty, have mercy on him. He died the year of the incarnation of the Lord, 1003, the twelfth day of the month of May. Now that opening line of the epitaph that the place of Gerbert's burial would remain until the coming of the Lord led to this legend that the bones of Sylvester II would rattle with coming catastrophe or before the coming of the Antichrist. So supposedly before the Pope died, uh, whoever the Pope was, you would hear a rattling of these bones at the Lateran Basilica. And that kind of leads us to all sorts of other legends that sprang up around Sylvester because he was so learned, because he went to Arabic Spain to do his learning. And those legends were that he was a secret magician, that he had a head possessed by a demoness, and that he asked it questions and told the future, and that he was an alchemist and all these other things. There's also a story that during the renovation of St. John Lateran, Sylvester's body was exhumed, and when it met the air, it completely dissolved into dust. Regardless, Pope Sylvester II was one of the most learned and capable men to ever be named Pope, and in the supposed dark ages of brutality and ignorance, he was a great light of education and erudition. 
He was political and not necessarily the model of total holiness, but he was a reformer who sought to bring light and learning back to the church. Unfortunately, his efforts will not be long-lasting, because after his death, he was succeeded by a hand-picked Crescenzi candidate, John Seventeenth. but we will talk briefly about his pontificate next week. Thanks for listening to Albemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on iTunes. Thank you and God bless you. <laughs>